Section 12 of A Study of British Genius by Havelock Ellis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 12 Conclusions. The characteristics of men of genius probably to a large extent independent of the particular field of their ability is shown in. What is the temperament of genius? In what sense genius is healthy? The probable basis of inaptitude for ordinary life. In what sense genius is a neurosis? It may be reasonable to ask and estimate the significance of those characteristics of British persons of genius we have here ascertained. To what degree an investigation of persons of eminent intellectual aptitude belonging to other countries would bring out different results. It is not possible to answer this question quite decisively. The fact, however, that at many points our investigation simply gives precision to characteristics which have been noted as marketing genius in various countries seems to indicate that in all probability the characteristics that constitute genius are fundamentally alike in all countries, though it may well be that minor modifications are associated with national differences. The point is one that can only be decisively settled when similar investigations are carried out concerning similar groups of persons of superior intellectual ability belonging to various countries. A further question may be asked. How far has confusion been introduced by lumping together persons whose intellectual aptitudes have been shown in very different fields? May not the average biological characteristics of the man of science be the reverse of those of the actor and those of the divine at the other extreme from those of the lawyer? I believe that Mr. Gowden is inclined to think that the investigation of groups of men with different intellectual aptitudes would yield different results. As, however, we have seen, the investigation of eminent British persons, when carried out without reference to the particular fields in which their activities have been exercised, yields results which, when comparable with those of Galton, do not usually show any striking discrepancies. Nor so far I have at present looked into the matter. Does it appear that, on the whole, when we consider separately the various groups of British eminent persons we are here concerned with, such groups show any widely varying biological characteristics Certain variations there certainly are. We have seen that the geographical distribution of the various kinds of intellectual activity to some extent varies, and also that in pigmentation there are in some cases marked variations. On the whole, however, it would appear that, whatever the field in which it displays itself, the elements that constitute the temperament of genius show a tendency to resemble each other. I shall probably be asked to define precisely what the temperament is that underlies genius. That, however, is a question which the material before us only enables us to approach very cautiously. There are two distinct tendencies among writers on genius. On the one hand, are those who seem to assume that genius is a strictly normal variation. This is the standpoint of Galton. On the other hand, those chiefly alienists who assume that genius is fundamentally a pathological condition and closely allied to insanity. This is the position of Blombroso, who compares genius to a pearl. So regarding it as a pathological condition, the result of morbid irritation, and by chance has produced a beautiful result, and who seeks to find the germs of genius among literary and artistic productions of the inmates of lunatic asylums. It can scarcely be said that the course of our investigation, uncertain as it may sometimes appear, has led to either of these conclusions. On the one hand, we have found along various lines the marked prevalence of conditions which can hardly be said to be constant with a normal degree of health or the normal conditions of vitality. 
On the other hand, it cannot be said that we have seen any ground to infer that there is any general connection between genies and insanity, or that genius tends to proceed from families in which insanity is prevalent. But while it is certainly true that insanity occurs with unusual frequency among men of genius, it is very rare to find that periods of intellectual ability are combined with periods of insanity. And it is, moreover, notable that putting aside senile forms of insanity, the intellectual achievements of those eminent men in whom unquestionable insanity has occurred have rarely been of a very high order. We cannot therefore regard genius either as a purely healthy variation occurring within normal limits, or yet as a radically pathological condition, not even as an alteration, a sort of allotropic form of insanity. We rather regard it as a highly sensitive and complexity developed adjustment of the nervous system along special lines, with concomitant tendency to defect along other lines. Its elaborate organization along special lines is often built up on a basis even less highly organized than that of the ordinary average man. It's no paradox to say that the real affinity of genius is with congenital imbecility rather than with insanity. If indeed we consider the matter well, we see that it must be so. The organization that is well adapted for adjustment to the ordinary activities of the life it is born into is not prompted to find new adjustments to suit itself. The organic inhibition of ordinary activities is necessarily a highly favorable condition for the development of extraordinary abilities when these are present in a latent condition. Hence it is that so many men of the highest intellectual aptitudes have so often shown the tendency to muscular incoordination and clumsiness with marked idiots, and even within the intellectual sphere, when straying outside their own province. They have frequently shown a lack of perception which placed them on scarcely so high a level as the man of average intelligence. It is not surprising that by means of the idiots' events, the wonderful calculators, the matioids, and men of one idea, and the men whose intellectual originality is strictly confined to one field, we may bridge the gulf that divides idiocy from genius. Since the basis of organic inaptitude, a condition which in a more marked and unmitigated form we call imbecility, may thus often be traced at the foundation of genius, we must regard it as a more fundamental fact in the constitution of genius than the undue prevalence of insanity, which is merely a state of mental dissolution. In nearly every case, temporarily or permanently abolishing the aptitude for intellectual achievement. It must not, however, be hastily concluded that the prevalence of insanity among men of genius is an accidental fact, meaningless or unaccountable. In reality, it's a very significant fact. The intense cerebral energy of intellectual reaction involves an expenditure of tissue which is not the dissolution of insanity, for waste and repair must here be balanced but it reveals an instability which may sink to the mere dissolution of insanity. If the balance of waste and repair is lost and the high pressure tension falls out of gear, insanity is rather a nemesis of the peculiar intellectual energy of genius exerted at a prolonged tide tension than an essential element in the foundation of genius. But a germinal nervous instability, such as to the ordinary mind stimulates some form of insanity, is certainly present from the first in many cases of genius, and certainly of immense value in creating the visions or stimulating the productiveness of men of genius. We have seen how significant a Gaudi inheritance seems to be. A typical example of this in recent years was presented by William Morris, a man of very original genius, of great physical vigour and strength, of immense capacity for work, who was at the same time abnormally restless, irritable, and liable to random explosions of nervous energy. Morris inherited from his mother's side a peculiarly strong and solid constitution, 
On his father's side, he inherited a neurotic and gouty strain. It is evident that, given the robust constitution, the general instability furnished by such a morbid element as this, falling far short of insanity, acts as a precious fermentative element, an essential constituent in the man's genius. The mistake usually made is to exaggerate the insane character of such a fermentative element, and at the same time to ignore the element of sane and robust vigour which is equally essential to any high degree of genius. We may perhaps accept the ancient dictum of Aristotle as reported by Seneca, no great genius without some mixture of insanity. But we have to remember that the insanity is not more than a mixture, and it must be a finely tempered mixture. This conclusion, suggested by our own survey of British persons of preeminent intellectual aptitude, is thus by no means either novel nor modern. It is that of most cautious and suggestious inquirers. The same position was rather vaguely adopted by Moreau, Detours, in his Physiologie Morbide dans sans Rapports, etc., published in 1859. Though, as his book was prolix and badly written, his proposition has often been misunderstood. He regards genius as a neurosis, but he looked upon such neurose as simply the synonym of exaltation. I do not say trouble or perturbation of the intellectual faculties. The word neurosis would appear a particular disposition of the faculties, a disposition still in part physiological, but overflowing those physiological limits, and he presents a genealogical tree of genius instead of the crime, etc., among its branches, the common root being the hereditary idiosyncratic nervous state. Professor Grasset, again, more recently, La superiorité intellectuelle et la neurose, 1900, while not regarding genius as a neurosis, considers that it is united to the neurosis by a common trunk, this trunk being a temperament and not a disease. The slight admixture of morbidity penetrating an otherwise healthy constitution, such as the present investigation suggests, as a frequent occurrence in genius, results in an organization marked by what Moreau calls a neurosis and grasset a temperament. It has been necessary to state as clearly as may be possible the conclusion suggested by the present study as regards the pathological relationships of genius, because although those conclusions are not essentially novel, the question is one that is apt to call out extravagant answers in one direction or another. The most fruitful part of our investigation seems, however, to lie not in the aid it may give towards the exact definition of genius, for which our knowledge is not sufficient, but in the promising fields it seems to open out for the analysis of genius along definite and precise lines. A time has gone by for the vague and general discussion of genius. We are likely to learn much more about its causation and nature by following out a number of detailed lines of inquiry on a carefully objective basis. Such an inquiry, as we have seen, is difficult on account of the defective nature of the material and the lack of adequate normal standards of comparison. Yet even with these limitations, it has not been wholly unprofitable. It has enabled us to trace a number of conditions, which, even if they cannot always be described as factors of the genus constitution, clearly appear among the influences highly favourable to its development. Such a condition seems to be the great reproductive activity of the parents, the child destined to attain intellectual eminence in many cases alone surviving. The fact of being either the youngest or the eldest child is a condition favourable for subsequent intellectual eminence, and I may add that I could refer to numerous recent instances of large families in which the eldest and the youngest, but no other members, have attained intellectual distinction. We have further seen that there is a tendency for children who develop genius to be of feeble health, 
or otherwise disabled during the period of physical development is easy to see the significance of this influence which by its unfavorable effects on the development of the limits an effect not exerted by the head which may thus remain relatively large leaves an unusual surplus of energy to be used in other directions at the same time the child who is thus deprived of the ordinary occupations of childhood is thrown back onto more solitary and more intellectual pursuits the clumsiness and other muscular incoordinations which we have found to be prevalent while there is good reason to believe that they are of congenital origin cooperate to the same end again it is easy to see how the shock of contact with a strange novel environment which we have proved to be so frequent acts as a most powerful stimulant to the nascent intellectual aptitudes it is possible to take a number of other common peculiarities in the course of the development of genius and to show how either they serve to inhibit the growth of genius along unfruitful lines or to further along fruitful lines such an investigation as the present is far from enabling us to state definitely all the determining factors of genius or even all the conditions required for its development it suggests that they are really very numerous and that genius is the happy result of a combination of many concomitant circumstances though some of the prenatal groups of circumstances must remain largely outside our ken we are entitled to believe that the factors of genius include the nature of the various stocks meeting together in the individual and the matter of their combination the evocation of the parents the circumstances attending conception pregnancy and birth the early environment and all the manifold influences to which the child is subjected from infancy to youth the precise weight and value of these manifold circumstances in the production of genius must be left to later investigation to determine end of chapter twelve and end of a study of british genius by havelock ellis recorded by leon harvey